boards and that there is nothing that happens that doesn't first pass through the hands of a sovereign God who loves us with an everlasting love. And therein lies our great, great hope. We're grateful this morning as we come to this part of our service that we have something to give. It's a reminder of just how much you bless us materially. And as we're going to talk this morning and think about folks where that's not nearly so much the case around the world. And just a reminder that we have been the beneficiaries of some amazing things, not because we are more righteous or more deserving than others, but simply because we're the beneficiaries of your grace. And so we are glad and thrilled to give this morning to be part of touching the lives of people around the world, some in this community, some in this church, some on the other side of the globe. And our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would go ahead of these gifts, plow up the plow up soil so that the, the soil might be loosened where seeds can be well planted, watered, fertilized, and grow into a great, great harvest. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 95, 99% Muslim. And while there's not a lot of fighting necessarily between the Yao and the other tribes in Malawi, there's still a very distinct separation. The Yao and the, and the other tribes don't always mingle together, especially in the church. And that's largely because they just have distinctive religions culturally. The challenge is that when we accept Jesus from Islam to Christianity, you have to suffer because they will reject you, they will chase you away. They will try many things like magic, this and this. Some they can beat you. Even in our area, you can take vehicle here to, my, to go to my area. You can walk two hours without churches. Everywhere, muskie, 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 muskie. But it's those people, when I see me, when I see my people, I'm, I'm very crying. If you are a Yao, you cannot be a Christian. You are a Muslim automatically. And choosing to become a Christian, leaving your parents' faith, means distracting yourself from the clan. And you stand on your own. And in 98, I leave the Muslim mosque. I got that time, I got two wives. And my wife will leave me. Said, yeah, I think you starting mad now. the word of God it's like a, a fire I didn't keep quiet I started preaching in the same village then three people were converted then my uncle came and said I told you that you don't need to preach it's only you then you are preaching then they chased us away again Then after a year they say come back we went back home we started preaching. Then seven people came to know Jesus. He was very furious because of that. He told me that you want to break the village. 
I said, no. I need to preach about light to people who are in darkness. I can't do otherwise. Well, this tool of saving um, and credit brings people together. So it's not something that one would fear, but well, something that will bring people together. People will have the same minds, and then they will chat, they will become friends. So in the course of uh, creating friendship, it will be easy and it is easier to share stories, to share challenges, uh, to share even your life uh, with people. Because we are telling them, let's serve man, they come. The very time we'll be preaching the gospel to them, as we are going by and by, I believe that their hearts will change. Because I'm the good example. The way I used to listen to the word of God, it starts to germinate in my heart. Because the word of God is it's a double-edged sword. If you listen to it, it will change your life. If we bring this program into the community, then they will evangelize. If we win the souls, then we disciple them. It will be a thing that will bring people further to Christ. In Isaiah chapter 56, uh, verse 8, it says, For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others too besides my people Israel. And the testimony of the word of God is that God is in the business of bringing all people to himself. It's an amazing thing. And we see in the Old Testament this focus on the Israelites and the Jewish people. And, and then Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I have all these other sheep too that I want to draw into my sheepfold. Here at Keystone, our uh, mission leadership team has a, a vision to infect all of us with a lifelong mission passion. And so each year, once or twice a year, we have special mission events and speakers in to give us uh, more and more of a scope and a picture of God's work in the world and his love for the world. And uh, this morning, we're privileged to have with us um, Peter Greer, who is the president and CEO of Hope International, a, a wonderful uh, mission microfinance ministry based here in uh, Lancaster. He has uh, worked internationally as a microfinance advisor in Cambodia, a technical advisor for Self-Help Development Foundation in Zimbabwe, and uh, he has been managing director for the Uwego Community Bank in Rwanda. He has uh, some vast global experience. And as a, today, an advocate for the church's role in missions and alleviating extreme poverty. Uh, he'll tell you more about the ministry, but Hope International works around the world uh, in the area of microfinance and uh, small loans to help people start businesses 
and then minister to their communities. I'm going to invite Peter to come up. He's going to share with us this morning. Brother, would you come up? Let me pray for you and then uh, see what God has to, to share with us. Father, thanks for Peter, for his life, for his ministry, and for this organization that he shepherds and um, maximizes, uh, in many ways, your grace to the world through it. And I pray that, as uh, he shares this morning, that the Holy Spirit would speak through him and that he might give us a more and more expansive view of uh, just how wide your love is for the world, your concern, your regard for people of every tribe, of every tongue, and every nation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. And this is a great privilege to be with all of you today. How are you doing? Good. Good, good. You know, there's uh, several things that I love about this church. Um, I love the mission that you have to be lifelong, uh, passionate followers of Jesus and engaged in global mission. I love that. And I love that that is not just a global mission. Um, my wife and I have gotten involved in foster care and adoption, and I know that that is also something that you are living out that mission here in our own community. And I greatly, greatly admire and appreciate even the way that you're going to be celebrating that next week. And I also love the timing of this, the conversation around missions. I love that this is coming uh, not that long after Easter. I love that not long after Easter, you're choosing to focus your Sunday morning on a global mission. And I love that because that's actually how it was at the very beginning. Do you realize that? There was a direct connection between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the mission that we have. And today we're just going to be in Matthew 28, just a little bit. Uh, but in Matthew 28, it starts out with the resurrection. And, and we know the story. We just told the story. We just celebrated the most miraculous resurrection of Jesus not that long ago. And, and Matthew 28 starts out like this. It says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And we know what they found. What did they find? An empty tomb, right? Jesus was not there. The angel is there. And the guards, and, and we know the story. We just celebrated this amazing story. And then we know the second part of Matthew 28. After it goes through the details of the resurrection, Matthew 28 has this next period. And what happens next? Are you guys, do you guys have it in front of you? So I was told this is okay, but I, I'm just going to give away a couple books today because I need help this morning, and I'm going to try to incentivize uh, your participation with me. Is that all right? All right, good. So I'm looking for people that have Bibles. There's a next section. So the first section is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most amazing, amazing, miraculous event in the entire history of the world. And then there's this next period. What's the next section right in the middle? Who's got a Bible? What happens next? I'm going to need some help, and it's going to have to be loud. The report of the guards. I don't know if I can throw this. This is going to be dangerous. I'm not going to do that, but I'll promise to give that to you later. But the, the guards, and this is the cover-up, right? We know what happens next. This is the cover-up. Oh, thank you. Um, the cover-up where, where the guards have to figure out Jesus, this angel came down, the resurrection happens, they're worried about their lives, and so they come up with this plot. They come up with this uh, plot so that people would not believe it. And so the guards report happens next, and then this is what uh, they, the chief priests devise a plan, and they say, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So there's, a, there's this collusion between the chief priests and between the guards that literally just saw the angel roll the stone away. And, and they come up with this plan. And so we have the resurrection, we have the cover-up, and then in this one chapter, we have what is the next section called? It's called the Great Commission. And this is the third part of, of this. Now, the Great Commission... Now, who, who knows what the Great Commission is? Is there someone who believes they can tell us what the Great Commission is? Yeah. You know, that is going to be another book here. And we're also, why, I need some front people uh, to get it right here because that's, that's going to be too far away. Exactly. So we, we, we read it. We read it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is known as the Great Commission. However, is that the end of the Great Commission? My guess is if most of us were asked to do something similar, we would say something similar because this is the part that we know. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But that's not all that Jesus said. What are the words that follow this great commission? And. There's a word, and. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then it promises that he will be with us to the very end of the age. Now, now I believe that most of us stop right here in our understanding of missions. It is to go and make disciples of all nations. But that includes teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, now sometimes when I grew up, I had a pretty narrow definition of, of missions. I, I had a pretty narrow definition, but the work that I have done, the, the way that I've been around, and you just saw a little bit about the work that is going on in Malawi, my worldview has been significantly changed, and part of it, is due to this fact that I never read what came after this idea of making disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That means that we don't get to pick and choose what we define the mission of the church as. It has to be a bigger, it has to be a broader, it has to be an all-expansive vision of what it means to be all-in, sold-out followers of Jesus, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, what did Jesus command us to do? This is, there's a lot in that category. There is a whole lot that we could say, this is what Jesus commanded us to do. But let's just take one example. What is the last formal teaching that Jesus had before these words? The, the previous chapters, chapter 26 and 27, are about the Passion Week. They're about the betrayal of Judas. They're, they're about going to the cross. What is the last teaching of Jesus right before these words are written? It's in Matthew 25. The formal kind of teaching where Jesus is sitting out and he's teaching his disciples. It's the last half of Matthew chapter 25, what is it known as? 
All right, we're going to give another book away here. I'm running out of books here. But Matthew 25, what's, what's the last half of this? Because again, if we're going to take these words seriously, to go and make disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, it, one interesting example is what is the last teaching that Jesus had right before this? What, what do we read in there? Ending of Matthew chapter 25. Sheep and the goats. Exactly. That's for you. You're the best. Thank you. Teaching of the sheep and the goats. And what's kind of the punchline of this? What's the punchline of the teaching of the sheep and the goats? Well, we know what it says. We know what it says. It says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, why is it growing up that I had a definition of what it meant to have a missions week it was only a verbal proclamation. And in some way, I had disconnected the verbal proclamation of Jesus to saying, what does it look like to show up in places of need and to respond? What does it look like as we are going and baptizing individuals in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What does it look like for us to also apply and obey all of the teachings of Jesus, which a whole lot of them dealt with how we respond to the poor, the needy, the downtrodden, the vulnerable? So much of our teaching of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ, was about our faith has to be connected to what we do to those who are in need. Our faith in Jesus, loving God, cannot be separated from our eyes and our hearts being open to the needs that we have all around us. Those two are inseparable. And so how do we actually live this out? Well, part of it involves that if we're to take this seriously, it says that when we see poverty, when we see those individuals that don't have the ability to provide food for their kids today, that we as followers of Jesus are going to be on the front lines of reaching out and responding. It means that when we hear about a refugee crisis, that we as followers of Jesus are going to be reaching out and loving the strangers among us. If we're to take the teachings of Jesus seriously and to teach all of us to obey everything that Jesus commanded, it means that when there are individuals that are in prison, we're to go visit and we're to figure out what it looks like to show up and love individuals at that moment of crisis. Because we are to go and make disciples and we are to teach all of us what it looks like to obey everything, everything that Jesus commanded to us. We can't pick we can't choose. The gospel demands a full, sold-out obedience to everything that Jesus taught us. And so how do we do that? How do we do that if we buy, if we believe that Jesus sends us out to go and make disciples and to teach all of us to not pick and choose, but to obey everything that he commanded us, how do we do that? How do we actually do that? And again, I challenge you, when you read Scripture, pay attention to the times, Old Testament and New, that there is to be followers of Jesus, people that have been transformed by the gospel, to care for people in need. 
It is inseparable to love God and what? To love our neighbor. I long to be part of a church that takes that call seriously, teaching us to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I want to share three things that I need to remember in my own life, and then I want to share a little bit more about uh, Hope International and about some of the ways that we try to teach this, and then I would love that to be the, the, the things that we focus on. So three really high-level thoughts. The reason why I oftentimes do not respond in a way that is in alignment with the teaching of Jesus. One is that I simply forget to see all too often. I simply forget to see. Now, when I look at individuals that follow the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, and when I look at Jesus himself, I see individuals that had eyes that were open. I see individuals that were not in such a rush that they failed to see individuals all around them. Acts chapter 3, early church. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gates called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And I can tell you in my work that I do internationally, there are oftentimes individuals that are sitting there begging and I can tell you it is so hard not to turn away. It is so hard to not allow myself to get engaged to a conversation. But what Peter did before he ever responded is he simply had his eyes open. He looked straight at him, as did John. Peter and John, before they do an incredible miracle of healing, the first thing that they did is they looked straight at him. Now, I worry sometimes in our culture today that sometimes we can get so fatigued from all the needs that we simply turn away and pretend that there is not incredible injustice, there is not incredible suffering. And yet I see followers of Jesus as the church was on the move, as the gospel was breaking forth, they saw people in need. They didn't walk by. I want to be part of a church that has our eyes open, even though it's hard that we have our eyes open. I was going to uh, come home uh, from a trip, um, and uh, as I was coming home from this trip, I uh, uh, was, was tired, and so there was a line that was waiting to get on the airline, and I was flying home to Philadelphia from, from Dallas, and as I was waiting to get on the flight, there was uh, kind of a commotion. There was someone at the front of the line that was delaying all of us, and it was a late flight, and uh, I don't know about you, but when I'm on my way home, I want to be home. I, am, I was so ready to be home with my family. And as I was looking to get on the plane, um, eventually there was a, a uh, woman at the front who had too many bags. And we all know you're allowed, what? One carry-on and one hand. And I pushed that to the limit, but this woman was pushing it to beyond the limit. And so as she is there, I, uh, a little bit annoyed, ended up handing my ticket, walking by her, and getting on. While I got on the plane, as I sat in my seat, I thought it would be a good time for me to do my devotion. So I'm opening up the Bible, and I am reading the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as I am doing this, the woman that I had just passed ends up getting on the flight, and she is crying. 
she is crying. And it's obvious that she's from another country. She is the Gatenge material. And uh, turns out, as she got on the plane, uh, she sat down, and I was so convicted that I had more in common with a priest and a Levite than I did with a good Samaritan because the priest and the Levite did exactly the thing that I did. They passed by. They passed by. The religious leaders passed by a person that was in need. And I was doing the same thing. When we landed in Philadelphia, turns out that this woman uh, uh, was from another country and she was from the nation of Burundi. And I started my, uh, I, I worked in Burundi uh, and Rwanda for several years, and I have received such incredible hospitality from my brothers and sisters in Burundi. They have gone all out in welcoming me into their home. Because I lived in Rwanda, the language is very similar. I spoke uh, a language that I could have communicated with her. She did not speak any English. She was having a hard time. And here I am because I am tired because I'm feeling like I just had a long trip. I'm walking by someone that God had put right there for me to love and care for. And I love that we serve a God of second chances. When we arrived in Philadelphia, I was able to communicate with her. I was able to hear her story. She was getting on another flight. I was able to help her get to the other flight. But I was so struck that here I am literally reading my Bible, literally reading a story and having very little in common with the Samaritan. Very little in common with someone who came to the person in need, and what did he do? Saw him, took pity on him, and went to him. Literally, it's possible for us to be studying our Bibles. Literally, it's possible for us to be reading these stories and to somehow disconnect them from our lives. And in that case, I was so struck by here was my, I was tired, I was ready, and I didn't even look at her. I didn't even stop to listen to the language that she was speaking. I simply walked by on the other side, and I want to stop walking by. My wife and I got involved in foster care because we heard a sermon about the needs of kids all around us. And I don't want to use my international work as an excuse not to respond to the needs that are all around us here too. For all of us, the question is, are our eyes open? Do we ask God to show us the hurting? Do we ask God to break our hearts for the injustices that we see in our world? And do we, as followers of Jesus, believe that we are to be people with really big eyes that are constantly on the lookout? But it's not just having our eyes open. Second piece is it's actually doing something. Because sometimes we can just have our eyes open and we can get to a grand story of, isn't that a shame? Isn't it a shame? That's not what it means to be followers of Jesus. It's to be not just people that have our eyes open, but then have our hands open and say, God, what would it look like for us to be people who respond with your love, who go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to have hands that are constantly responding to the needs that are all around us. And I can tell you that over the last year, I have been so moved by the way that I have seen the church of Jesus Christ responding I am so encouraged by the way that I see you responding to the needs here and around the world. And I think that any time that there is a disaster, any time that there is a significant crisis, this is when our faith should be shining for the world to see. 
And so literally, when there have been floods in Houston, I know churches that were rallying their congregation members to go get in boats and to run towards people that were in need. I know that as the cleanup came, that there were churches on the front lines of responding to the homes that were destroyed. I know that when there were fires that have been happening around the world and there have been people that have needed a place to go, that churches have opened up their doors and said, you are welcome here. I know that the church of Jesus Christ is on the move. And you know what happens when the church is on the move in the wake of incredible need? People might still be confused by the message, but they are fascinated by the heart behind it. This was a headline in USA Today. It said, faith groups provide the bulk of disaster recovery. This article in USA Today said that faith groups, Christian faith groups, were providing 75% of all of the response to these crises that were happening. And I say, that's the church. That's the church on the move. That's what it looks like to see the needs and to respond in an incredible way. And I tell you that when that is the headlines, we are part of an unbroken chain from the time of Jesus of what it looks like to go and make disciples of all nations and to teach all of us to obey everything that Jesus commanded. The early church was known for the same sort of sacrificial love. Dionysius, who was the first bishop of Athens, wrote this. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. What is Dionysius saying? He's saying that our faith makes a difference in how we respond. At that time, there were plagues. And as the plagues swept through cities, there was a group of people that responded with courageous compassion. And they stayed behind to care for people in need. At this time in history, there were famines. And there was a group of people that said, what I have is not to be hoarded, but it is to be shared. And so they gave generously. And so if you survived at this moment of time in history, you probably had a follower of Jesus that ministered to you. And I tell you, when you show up and care for individuals, they are far more willing to hear what it is that you are saying. I long for us to be a church that is known for creative, compassionate generosity and service to others. I long for the world to look at followers of Jesus and say, that is a group of people that is different. That is a group of people. Tell me about this Jesus that you serve. I long for that to be what the church is known for. But it's not just seeing. It's not just responding. It's responding in an ethic of love that says we've got to make sure that the way that we respond really is loving them well. Now, there's been a fascinating history within the last 10 years in particular. There's been a number of books that have been written, books like When Helping Hurts, Books like Toxic Charity, books that have said, as we have gone to follow Jesus and run to the poor, to the vulnerable, to the suffering, that sometimes our good intentions don't always have good results. And even the organization that I work with is an organization that was born out of charity. Right here in uh, central Pennsylvania, right here in Lancaster, not far away from here, there is a church. And this church was responding to the needs after the fall of the Soviet Union. And at that time, there was a humanitarian crisis. And as there was this humanitarian crisis, the church said, we've got to respond. And so they did respond. They packed their suitcases. They sent over shipping containers. They built buildings. And they did all of this good. 
But after doing this for several years, as the situation in Ukraine started to change, Pastor Petrenko pulled the team aside and said, your help isn't helping anymore. Now, why in the world would a pastor who's receiving all of this humanitarian assistance from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, say your help isn't helping anymore? And the reality was they started to realize that what was so good, what was so right, was so appropriate at a moment in need was actually not making the long-term impact. And this is a fascinating study from Duke University that looks at how is the church responding to the issue of poverty. And perhaps not surprisingly, the most common response is food. Next is housing and the following one is clothing. Now all of those things are good in a time of immediate disaster. But what do we know about food? It is eaten and then there is hunger again. What do we know about housing? We know if you are a homeowner that homes need to be repaired more often than I wish they needed to be. And what do we know about clothing? We know that it wears out. What this pastor in Ukraine was saying is that there comes a point where you've got to help us help ourselves. That instead of continuously being dependent on your charity, we really want to be able to stand on our own two feet. They found that this giving cycle that Bob Lupton writes about, that initially when they gave things away, there was appreciation, but they went back and they gave more and there was anticipation. They gave a third time and there's expectation. They gave a fourth time and there's entitlement. And they gave a fifth time and there's full-blown dependency. And what this pastor was realizing is that what was so good and appropriate in an immediate crisis situation was not actually making a long-term difference. So if we are to love God, if we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, if we are to love in a way that is rooted in what is going to be best for you, I believe sometimes we need to be creative in how we respond. I love what C.S. Lewis writes. He said, the proper aim of giving is to put the recipient in a state where he no longer needs our gift. The hour when we can say they need me no longer should be our reward. So as we go and as we serve in places of need, the question is, what do we do to equip, to serve, so that we can take a step away, so that the church can have the blessing locally as it is planted, as it grows, as it is able to fund itself long-term? What does it look like for us to step away and say, the same God that we serve, the same mission that we have, the same goal of making disciples, the same goal of teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, that now it is your enormous privilege for you to carry on. And I tell you, that is happening around the world. The church is happening. And just one way that we are contributing to that, and so thankful so many of you have been partners with Hope International but it's to identify individuals within the churches, to identify individuals within the communities that are ready to work and to say, how can we help you become agents of generosity and blessing and flourishing in your world? So let me just tell you a real simple way of how that works. Real simple way, but imagine if you were born in Burundi where the woman was that I walked by. Imagine that you are in that context and imagine that you have a needle and thread and imagine that that is how you are gonna provide for your kids. So every single day you're gonna wake up and you're gonna take that needle, you're gonna take that thread and you are gonna work hard to provide for your family. Imagine every day you do that. 
But you imagine that if one day you could have a sewing machine, that your productivity would go through the roof. Instead of needle and thread, imagine the productivity. But there's a really difficult obstacle there. And that's that it costs $100 to get that investment. So every day you're saving, and after five years, you have saved up $25. If it took you five years to save that $25, how long would it take you to save up for that sewing machine? I've got one more book. What was it? This is not difficult math. I appreciate that you all are still on. I don't know who said that, but someone said it. There you go. Um, so 20 years, exactly. If it took five years to save 25, it takes 20 years. And I can imagine what that would look like if every single day, imagine yourself in that situation. Every day when you wake up, you're making impossible decisions. And I have seen individuals make these impossible decisions. But do I spend my money on saving up for that or buying medicine when my kid gets sick? My dad is a, a pastor, and I'll never forget when he was early on, he told this story about how he showed up in this community in Haiti, and literally the day before, the day before he arrived, one of the kids died in the village because they didn't have one dollar to get to see the doctor. And I say, that's not okay. That's not okay. For I was sick. <laughs> What did we do? Second thing, we know impossible decisions of do you save up for that or do you invest in your kid's education? Or do you save up or do you buy nutritious food? And I was in Haiti and I watched moms baking dirt in the sun so at least their children would have something in their stomach when they went to bed. And I say that's not okay in the world in which we live. And so I just imagine what would it look like if we somehow as followers of Jesus, could show up in those places of hunger, of those places of need, what would it look like if we show up? And I can tell you, I know what would happen. If we could somehow accelerate that pace, if that woman, imagine her name is Deanna, imagine if Deanna could have access to that sewing machine, imagine the impact if she could earn more, imagine the impact on her family. Imagine the impact on her community and imagine if we could do it in such a way that at our core, it's not just to help Deanna, but it is to point her to the one and only Savior. Imagine what that would look like if we could be on the front lines of running towards individuals in need. Imagine the impact. Now that simple story, that simple illustration, just as one way of responding to incredible need, It's actually not a fictitious story. I was with Deanna in Burundi. I got to see her sewing machine. I got to hear her story. I got to hear the impact that she was sharing about the simple way of getting in a group and allowing her God-given skills to be used. Imagine the impact if that were normative in the world's places of incredible suffering. Imagine the impact. And it's not just Deanna. It's not just Deanna. Uh, Two months ago, I was with Alphonsine, uh, also in Burundi, and apparently her daughter is a Titans football fan. Who knew in Burundi? But this was her home. And as she's standing behind her home, she welcomed us into her home, and she talked about her cows that she now owns. She talked about her home that she now owns. But what she talked about also was the way in which she has been used as an agent of blessing and generosity in her community. 
At our core, I believe that if we are to be faithful to the call of Jesus, we are to go and make disciples of all nations. And we're to do it in many, many creative ways. But as we do it, I believe there is an unbelievable opportunity as we are running towards the suffering to combine our faith with open eyes and open hands to say, what does it look like for us to love well? And your partnership with Hope International is just one of the many ways in which you are participating in that, to run towards the hurting, to run towards the suffering, to love them in a way that we have experienced an incredible amount of love, and to figure out how we do that in the world's most broken places. So for us, we invest in businesses in a way that introduce individuals to a group context based in the local church, and as you saw in the video, able to do that even in unreached people groups, to go into places because Jesus is on the move on in all nations. And Jesus is working here in Lancaster and around the world, and it is an enormous privilege to be people, to be part of a church that says need, poverty, these are not things to be overwhelmed by. These are invitations for us to respond, to love, to share, to show up, and to reach all nations with the love of Jesus Christ. And then the best part, best part of my job, is that just as I see generosity here in Lancaster, I love that I get to see generosity. This is one of the individuals also from Burundi, also in a nearby community named Janine. And what we found is that Janine was helped in her moment of need. And she wasn't helped by you. She wasn't helped by me. She was helped by the individuals in her community. Because the same Jesus that we follow, the same gospel that we read, the same call that we have to go and make disciples of all nations, the same call that we have to see the poor, the hungry, to visit those who are in prison, that is a universal call for all followers of Jesus. And so Janine, when her husband died, when she was left destitute to care for her children, it was her local community. It was individuals in her little savings group that you heard about. It was those individuals that responded, and I love this. She said, it's like I fell down, and they came to pick me up. I love that this call that we have is not a North American call. The words that Jesus shared that we know as the Great Commission, those are not just words for us that gather here. This is for all followers of Jesus, and in many ways, I believe I, we have so much to learn from the way in which our friends and brothers and sisters around the world are responding. And so I love that I get to travel to these places around the world. I love that I get to show up. And I love that in some way I get to see the same call that all of us have, the same call that you are living out in your community, the same call. It is for all of us as followers of Jesus. And I am thrilled. I am thrilled that we are part of an unbroken chain from the time of Jesus, from the time of the early church to today, and now until the return of Jesus to be people that love, that respond, that make disciples, and that continue to figure out how do we improve? How do we love well? How do we make sure that we are really making an impact in the way that we're responding? And so that is my hope for all of you. May you, my friends, here gathered on this beautiful Sunday morning, may you be people with eyes that are open, hands that are ready to roll up our sleeves and to respond wherever there is hurt in our world, and to be people that love enough to say, let's make sure that our helping really does help. 
Let's make sure that we are loving well. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your love. And I pray that this group of people would be known as people that run towards the hurting, run towards need. That this would be a group of people that would be so marked by the experience of what you have done for us that they can't help themselves but sharing and showing that love with others. And we know that you are with us in this. You are with us until the very end. And for that, we give you praise and we want to worship you now. We want to worship you for the rest of our lives and we look forward to worshiping you forevermore. We praise your name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus.